In the wake of the horrific Manchester attack, we want to go beneath the surface of what is going on with respect to the true motivations behind such attacks. We're joined by Dr. Tad Tietza, a psychiatrist, social commentator and co-editor of Onatoya, Anders Breivik, Right Terror, Racism and Europe. Tad, thanks for joining us. Very great, great for you to join us. There is something very unseemly about the politicisation of terrorist atrocities like the Manchester Arena attack that happens in the mainstream media as well as social media, both on the left and right. Within hours of such attacks taking place, sometimes even as the initial reports of the atrocity are still coming through the news wires, no doubt we could be accused of such unseemly politicisation ourselves by having this very conversation. I wanted to start by asking, is it legitimate to frame these attacks, first and foremost, as acts motivated by political ideology? And why are people on both the left and right so quick to place such attacks within a narrow, preconceived framework of understanding, often before they have access even to the bare outline of who the attacker was and what their motivations were? Yeah, I, I think that's true with almost every one of these terror attacks that we see. There's a pre-existing, relatively locked-in narrative uh, on each side of politics um, that, you know, there's, there's a conservative, hardline, pro-security state, um, you know, as many wars as possible in the Middle East kind of narrative. And then there's the sort of liberal progressive, we've pushed things too far, we need to be sensitive about things. Um, and, you know, uh, we, we probably shouldn't um, be occupying so many Middle East countries. And I've got to say, I'm far more sympathetic to the second to the second viewpoint. But I think in both cases, they end up colouring an analysis of what's actually going on with this uh, rise in what we would call uh, jihadist terrorism. So specific terrorism now mostly isolated, uh, um, associated with ISIS, previously associated more with Al-Qaeda, but it was, it was a somewhat different organisation. And it's particularly, it's a domestic and homegrown variety. Uh, many of the terrorists uh, have, at, at the very least, been born and brought up uh, in the Western countries uh, and are often second-generation immigrants, as in people born in Western countries, um, and yet organising to uh, kill their fellow citizens. So I think those narratives come because people are trying to fit uh, a really difficult-to-understand phenomenon within their own um, preconceived um, you know, uh, wishes about which way politics and which way policy should go. There is a complicated picture emerging of exactly who Salman Abadi was, the Manchester attacker. Some reports suggest he was unambiguously a devout radical Muslim. An article by Steve Morris in The Guardian, on the other hand, reports he was, quote, a bit of a party animal who drank vodka and smoked weed daily, was popular with girls and always clubbing or at house parties, and that he hung out with a criminal gang in his neighbourhood in South Manchester. We're perhaps not in a position to know how accurate this profile is, but it's certainly consistent with the social biography of many a Salafist terrorist. Many of the attackers in France, Belgium and elsewhere were also drug takers, petty criminals, and appeared to be very socially isolated, essentially failed human beings, at least in conventional terms. What are your comments on Abedi specifically, and you've touched on this already, but also what does this typical social profile tell us about the nature of modern Salafist terrorism? 
Well, I think the interesting thing is that there are really um, relatively different levels of success in life of these uh, individuals. Now, some people, I think uh, two brothers who were involved in one of the nasty attacks in Paris a couple of years ago um, were still running running a successful bar in their neighbourhood, like an alcohol-serving bar in their neighbourhood right up to the time of the attack. Um, so there's actually a, 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 a varied profile, but what does seem to unite them is... Uh, first of all, they don't tend to have been people who were devout Muslims uh, or even shared their family's uh, devout Muslim practice um, you know, when they, were, when they were younger. They tend to have some kind of set of changes in their life. Often it is to do with getting involved with petty crime and being involved with the criminal justice system and often being one to, ra- to, to this radical ISIS-style outlook in jail, but not always. Sometimes it's through family networks and, and, and local connections. Um, Rarely is it through mosques. The UK is probably the one major Western country where there has been a network around mosques in the past, um, like in France and Belgium and so on. It tends to be family and friend networks in local neighbourhoods or networks via the criminal justice system. Um, and then, then you have this a phenomenon of a high level of converts as well. So either people who've come from Muslim families who have never really been interested or people who've come from completely non-Muslim families who, who uh, convert. So apparently a quarter of all the cases in the French author Olivier Roy's um, sort of database um, are, are converts to Islam, a quarter of the sort of the jihadists, whether the ones to go off and fight in Syria and Iraq or the ones who stay at home to plot domestic terror. Um, so this is very interesting because this is apparently about... 80 times the rate of conversion uh, of people to Islam in Europe in general. So there's this kind of um, there's this kind of thing about the about the jihadist ideology that seems to attract uh, an interesting group of people. And the one thing that really unites them is a is a is a deep sense of anger and alienation with society, which comes across in all documented and recorded sort of things that they've said in 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 the lead up to um in the lead up to their to their acts of terror or going off to fight or so on. What is your view as a psychiatrist of the interface here or at least the potential interface between mental illness and political motivation? You were critical in your book on Otoya, for instance, of attributing the Norwegian fascist mass murderer Anders Breivik's actions to narcissistic personality disorder or some other form of, of mental illness when clearly his manifesto that he published online suggested he had a, arguably a very coherent political ideology that motivated his, his mass murder. So what's going on here with some of these attackers in terms of is it perhaps a combination of both? They perhaps are mentally ill, but they also are, are politically motivated. What's the sort of balance of that equation? So in the world of uh, psychiatry, there are two types of, of mental disorder, really. There are the mental illnesses like schizophrenia and manic depression and so on, which um, really take away people's capacity to make rational judgments uh, when they're unwell. Then there's a sort of a wider group of mental disorders, which are sometimes called the personality disorders, which suggests people who have problems sort of functioning in relationships uh, over, over the course of their adult lives. Um, and it's really... Um, this group of people are probably more likely to have come from that group. Not all of them actually saw mental health professionals beforehand for that to be confirmed. Um, there is lots of empirical evidence that they did have problems with relationships that were perhaps more than you would expect in the average in the population. Um, they were a bit more disturbed in that way, just like Anders Breivik. Um, but whether or not you can really pin it on a, on a diagnosis that just puts this in the realm of illness, I don't think is, 
is very useful, particularly because these diagnoses really are about how well do you fit into society, and that presumes you have a society that everyone should be able to fit into. We are speaking to psychiatrist, author and social commentator Dr Tad Tietze, and you're listening to the Indie Media Show on RTRFM 92.1. Indie Media. It feels like we're skirting around the edges of this broader question of why these attacks are taking place. I mean, let's really try to drill down to the question of why someone like Salman Abedi, a 23-year-old born in Britain to Libyan parents, would murder a group of mostly young concert goers. In terms of that broader question, I mean, I know you've touched on it already, but what are your own thoughts on this seemingly very difficult question? It strikes me as a much more complex question than it's made out uh, to be by the mainstream media. I think I think it is very complicated. I think there is, if you're going to look for a contextual factor, I think it has to be um, a deep level of alienation from society because these are fundamentally very antisocial acts. It's not like people have taken arms up in a very clear strategic direction and perhaps there's going to be some collateral damage of innocence along the way. This is the targeting of, of people who really have nothing to do with war zones, um, nothing to do with, uh, you know, grand... Western strategy in the Middle East or any of these kinds of things. They're not part of the structures of, um, you know, uh, repression of Muslims in, in, in Britain and so on. So the targets, uh, you know, it's a very antisocial um, kind of act, which suggests, um, and I think Olivier Roy is right about this, that these people, for some reason, their lives lead them to feel so dramatically alienated from society that they are looking for a radical solution that is pretty nihilistic, that's about tearing everyone down around them and being willing to die. In fact, death is a huge part of the ideology. Martyrdom is a huge part of the ideology that attracts people to ISIS. So I think that's one half of it. The second half is, well, why ISIS? Well, I think it is because it is this kind of extremely radical, nihilistic political project um, about tearing everything down, um, that it ends up tracking these people who've already reached this level of alienation. So we're not talking the radicalization that leads someone to join a small socialist group. We're talking, uh, because most of those people don't think, yeah, and I wouldn't mind like bombing the crap out of everyone. But these people are so alienated from society that, that a group that is you know, successful in some way at, at attracting them can can be that kind of pole of attraction in a way that for people, and I think I think the third thing is about Muslims because people do ask, well, why, why is it that Muslims are disproportionately ISIS members? Can't ISIS just recruit anyone? And the answer is it, it would make more sense for young people who are alienated and alienated from their parents' Islam to hear about a specific type of Islam that actually rejects all that, wants to tear all that down because that's, you know, that's fake Islam and, you know, we, we've got the one true way forward. And I think Olivier Roy's work on that, I think he's pulled it together more than anyone else has, this issue of the social alienation combined with this political project with a certain kind of ideology that really matches that alienation, that, that sense of rage against society. Why, Tad, are so many people on the left so quick to play the game that's become known, at least in some social media circles, as whataboutery? As in, what about the schools and hospitals being bombed by the Saudi Air Force with the US backing in Yemen? What about the hundreds of civilians killed by US bombs recently in Mosul and so on? Why is the left, broadly speaking, so quick to place attacks like the Manchester atrocity within the framework of anti-imperialism, even when the evidence suggests that actually it's nowhere near as simple as that? Yeah, well, I, I think at one level it's understandable because the Islamists, at, at, at the jihadists at some level, refer to these grievances. These are seen as grievances against sort of these 
like against Muslims, which is a central part of, um, I mean, if their ideology is to assert a certain type of Islam on everyone else, and everything else is a grievance against that, then it makes total sense why actual real nasty things that are done to Muslim-majority nations, uh, to Muslim people within the West, um, these things end up being more grievances to add to the list um, for, to, to attract the jihadists. Um, and more than that, these are really terrible things that really the left should oppose, you know, not because there's a terrorist threat that comes out of it, but because they are bad things in and of themselves. Like, that's really important. Um, you know, um, oppression of Muslims or attacks on uh, Muslim-majority countries or invasions or occupations or destruction of entire states by the U.S. military, these kinds of things we should oppose. But I don't think we should imagine that just because we oppose them and we have an anti-imperialist or anti-Islamophobic way of looking at the world, that that is really what the jihadists are about, because they've got a completely different political project. It's not the same political project. And and so understanding what drives their organisations and the logic of their organisations and their activities, you can't really understand it through this anti-imperialist frame. But I think people want to move away from the more difficult question, which is, well, what exactly is going on um, with the jihadists? And the thing that strikes me, I guess, more than the water battery, um, or there's, there's another nasty thing, which is, let's Let's say, is it more likely for you to be struck by lightning or a terrorist attack? Oh gosh, it's more likely to be struck by lightning, therefore why are you worried about terrorist attacks? Which kind of depoliticizes, doesn't understand why people are worried that there are political organizations out to kill people. Like, this is not a lightning strike, which is a more random, uncontrollable event. This is, this is about um, political action. But I, 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 think, I think the left gets, um, gets uh, really caught up in not really wanting to deal with what is the logic of the jihadist project. And because it does seem to be fighting a common enemy, imperialism or racism or whatever, I think there's a tendency to actually not really want to have a critique. And, and finally, the worry that you're going to be an Islamophobe if you attack the jihadist political project, which most Muslims want nothing to do with anyway, um, leads people to, to not want to really tack on this political force. Finally, Tad, in terms of the delusions of the right, of course, these attacks are seen as an opportunity to further or fuel the commentary about the need for tougher border controls throughout Europe, the need to curtail the mass migration of Syrian refugees and so on. What are your comments on this alleged connection between the migration of refugees, particularly from the Middle East into Europe, and, and the rise of Salafist terrorism. Is there a connection, given that so many of these attackers actually are, as you say, homegrown? Yes. So, look, there are a certain proportion, of course, who have uh, immigrated during their lives. Um, who have been uh, They do tend to have been living for a lot longer in the Western countries anyway. Um, but really, this is like the, the view that um, border control, if we had a time machine, the TARDIS, and went back in time and, you know, stopped all Muslim immigration 50 years ago, we could stop this problem, which, of course, you can't do. And, in fact, if you'd done that, would the world have been different and these kinds of threats would be different anyway? These, these become kind of, you know, crazy hypotheticals. Um, the... the uh, and I, I think the other the other real big problem with it is that there is this tendency to suggest, and this is particularly on the right, that any Muslim who crosses the border is a potential terrorist. Whereas actually, if you look at most Muslims, the vast majority are absolutely appalled by what the jihadists do, want nothing to do with that, don't share the same kind of view of the Islamic faith um, and, and all the rest of it. Even Salafists, the vast, as Olivier Roy says, um, you know, hardly 
any Salafists are jihadists, but probably all jihadists are Salafists. So you have this problem of you can't even just have a blanket anti-Salafist kind of policy because it actually just catches all these people who want nothing to do with jihadism. And so you, you end up creating a situation where you just lump all Muslims together. And unfortunately, I think because the left wants to defend all Muslims against Islamophobia, they sometimes actually reproduce some of those arguments from the left and, and don't try to see what is the way that you can argue against against those, the arguments of the jihadists, I have a critique of jihadism that is not just, well, they do bad stuff and we prefer them not to, uh, and, and thereby actually be able to defend the rest of Muslims from, from the unfair way that the right constantly lumps them in with the jihadists.